Welcome to VAMC Conversations. On this monthly podcast, we will have a discussion on ministries and how we can strengthen our connection together. All episodes of VAMC Conversation will be shared on the third week of each month. Feel free to contact us and share any suggestions and comments. And also remember to subscribe and share so we can further our reach. Today, we are living in an odd time where we hear the crisis of Russia and Ukraine. And we might be wondering what we can do. So in order for us to help our church and our annual conference members, we gather clergy and lay members around the conference who have experience serving in the mission of both Russia and Ukraine. And I would like to say it's such an honor to see all of these awesome people who have been doing God's work in different contexts. So I wanted to ask everyone to go around and introduce themselves along with their connection with either Russia and Ukraine. I'm gonna ask Laura to start for us. I'm Laura Stratton. I am an elder serving the Southern Albemarle Charge on the Charlottesville District, Scottsville United Methodist, and Mount Zion United Methodist in Esmont. Um, my connection to Russia begins in 2003 when I was at college at William and Mary, and I started studying the Russian language. Ended up being a Russian studies major, and went to Russia after my sophomore year on a short-term mission trip, and then also. I did the short-term mission trip in the Northern Caucasus region in the city of Pitagorsk. And then I did a study abroad in St. Petersburg for six weeks. And then after graduation, I went back to Russia to live in Pitagorsk for about 10 months. Um, and then when I got returned home, I got heavily involved in the Russia Initiative in Virginia. And I was participated in the 2009 Russia Initiative consultation um, that started to move the ministries more into the hands of the churches themselves in Russia and the Ukraine and the Eurasian region. Um, and my main connection then with Ukraine is I've just gotten to go there as a tourist and spend some time in Kiev. Thank you very much. Now we're gonna invite David. Hello, I'm David Heinemann. I'm a retired elder living now in Williamsburg and I was the United Methodist Campus Minister at the Wesley Foundation uh, when Laura was a student. And for about 12 years, we were involved in an exchange program with university students uh, at William and Mary and also in Pitgorsk. Um, and with the small United Methodist congregation that was there at that time. When I moved from the Wesley Foundation in 2010 to Duncan Memorial United Methodist Church on the campus of Randolph-Macon in Ashland, Virginia, uh, we had several of our uh, members who became involved in mission work in Lviv, Ukraine, um, under the guidance and coordination of Alan and Hannah Nixon at Grace United Methodist Church. And I also was on the Russia Initiative Committee for a number of years. Yes, thank you very much. We're gonna talk a little bit more about Russia Initiative later on, but before we do that, uh, can I invite Khan to introduce himself? I'm Con Hall. I'm elder uh, serving Woodstock United Methodist Church in Harrisonburg District. And Moscow, Russia was my second home because I was born in Seoul, South Korea. But I lived in Moscow from 1994 to until 2002 uh, because my dad was, my father was missionary sent from South Korea, Korean Presbyterian Church to Russia from 1994, 2002. 
And yeah, as living in Moscow, I learned a few things and I, I'm grateful that I have this opportunity to can share some of the experiences that I had living in Moscow, Russia. Great, thank you very much. And then Danny, can you introduce yourself? Hello everybody, um, I, my name is Daniel Cho. Uh, I currently serve as the next generation ministry pastor at uh, KMC of Greater Washington, which is located in McLean, Virginia. I recently transferred into the Virginia Annual Conference from the New York Annual Conference. Um, my story, I guess, begins um, not by choice. I was uh, taken <laughs> by, my, by my father, who was a missionary back in 1990 to 1996 um, during the Soviet era. Um, we uh, family uh, has planted, planted multiple churches uh, in Moscow uh, in that area but later on extended across uh, the whole country. And um, I was only in second grade to seventh grade, but that's where all the current right now Episcopal leaders, uh, Bishop Edward Haggai, um, D.S. Andre Kim, all of them, uh, I've known them uh, during that time. Uh, but then fast forward, uh, forward, uh, I was also, be, uh, oh, sorry, uh, my parents were GBGM missionaries um, um, during, during that time. And they currently also are GBGM missionaries uh, to Russia, but because of the pandemic, they're currently out in Kyrgyzstan right now. But fast forward, as a pastor, uh, I was able to take a group of youth uh, on a mission trip to Ukraine in 2012, and then to Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan in 2013. But um, the important information there is a lot of the leaders, uh, they were appointed to Ukraine currently right now. And in 2016, uh, I, I was given an opportunity to speak to uh, young adult and youth leaders um, in uh, Ukraine, Uzgorod. And so met many pastors during that time as well and uh, still kept in touch uh, in, in varieties of ways. But um, again, thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we remember your parents uh, who are there in the land. I want to invite Hannah and Alan Nixon. Uh, yes, we are Hannah and Alan Nixon. We are both lay members of Grace United Methodist Church in Manassas. We started our um, ministry with leading teams to Russia. We went mainly to Ivanovo, Russia, and we, we did that for, um, I guess, about eight or nine years. Then we changed and went to Ukraine, um, where we worked three summers with um, college students teaching English as to them conversational English. We did that out in a countryside in the mountains and had a great time doing that. The ministry there grew very quickly and very well. One of the university students became the pastor of a church and formed the church there, the Methodist church there, St. John's in Lviv. So we're, and we keep up with him all the time. Thank you very much, thank you. And I'm pretty sure that your heart is dear and near to the crisis, thank you. Alan, can you share uh, your experience and your connection? Yes, and I apologize. I hope hopefully the noise in the background doesn't carry through too much here, but uh, I'm a, also a lay member of uh, Grace United Methodist Church and uh, where Hannah Nixon and 
Pastor Jessica participate, or our, our members, uh, Pastor Jessica serving as a pastor. As I mentioned uh, previously, I have no direct work with Ukraine or Ukrainians, but having been an Army officer, Army Ranger, uh, some of our counterparts are have been very active in uh, helping rescue uh, American citizens and uh, host nation counterparts who have become trapped in Ukraine. Uh, also served in uh, Germany in, in the mid 80s when we were still uh, patrolling the border there before the uh, former Soviet Union collapsed. And, uh, and then also uh, served in South Korea along the demilitarized zone. And in both those situations, we uh, occasionally had the opportunity and privilege to help rescue those that were fleeing from those uh, oppressed countries and help them at a very difficult time in their lives. So my heart really breaks and uh, feels for the millions of refugees in Ukraine. Uh, and I just, uh, I guess, just like I said, my heart just breaks so so much for those folks. And I hope that uh, I'm excited to hear of all the efforts that are going on, particularly through the United Methodist Church, which we members. So thank you for you all do. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for your service as well. And now I'm going to invite uh, Julianne to uh, share an introduction. Hi, I'm Julianne Panescu, and I am a lay member of Beverly Hills Community United Methodist Church in Alexandria. And I am also a member of the recently formed Refugee Response Team under the serving ministries uh, that RJ heads. I, before I um, did all that, I am recently retired from the Foreign Service, and during that time, a lot of my years were spent working either in or on the countries that we're talking about today. I was uh, in college, a Soviet studies major, and um, two years after I graduated, the Soviet Union fell apart, which then sort of meant that my books on Ukraine socialist farming could be uh, recycled, which was good. Um, but then I was posted in Romania uh, right after the revolution where I met my husband. And so I still have very close ties and all of his family still lives in Romania and we are watching um, the war closely with them. Uh, I also served in Moldova for uh, two years between 1996 and 1998, and then came back to the States and served as the uh, intelligence analyst for Moldova and Belarus for four years while stationed here in Washington with a backup portfolio on Ukraine. Um, so I am looking at this not only with my um, academic and government background, but also having lots of friends and relatives who are in that zone. And uh, I'm happy that our conference is stepping up to see how we can help. So thanks. Thank you very much. So these are all these experts and people who had experienced uh, Russia and Ukraine gathered. And I'm really excited to see what we can learn from uh, the conversation that we have. But I also have to share that a lot of people kind of wonder why Russia and Ukraine? What, what is the connection? Why is Putin trying to do this despite all the crazy rhetoric that will, uh, and, and also the sanctions that they had, uh, the, the suffering of the sanctions that they need to go through? Is there anyone who can give some light, shine some light onto that historical background of Russia and Ukraine relationship?
I'd love to hear what Julianne has to say about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, David. Aren't you kind? Um, well, as I asked RJ before we started recording, how far back did he want me to go? Because obviously there are centuries and centuries of history. Uh, this is the, you know, the Rus. Uh, and um, not only are they neighbors, but there was a period of time uh, but I, well, I should say Ukraine was the first, was part of the first Soviet socialist republics when the Soviet Union was formed. But uh, prior to that, you, what is now what we recognize as Ukraine was either under control of the Russian empire or it was under control of, of Poland, the Polish you know, empire. So when you hear Putin stand up and say, well, Ukraine never really was a country, it was either part of Poland or it was part of us, he is, um, how should we say, selecting the parts of history he wants to emphasize. But I also know from other um, work that I've done that the Soviets were very good about explaining why uh, certain of their republics weren't really their own countries. And that's not only for Ukraine. So that's typical. And of course, we all know that President Putin came up through that system and, and has heard that government rhetoric his whole life. So for him, um, you know, I would say that when when Putin, when the Soviet Union was falling apart, was very hard for him personally and professionally based on what he has said. But I would also say that he had just been tapped by President Yeltsin when the first countries um, that were part of what had been the Soviet bloc became part of NATO. And I think that he and Yeltsin had very different ideas about what that looked like. And I think that at times when our government leaders use phrases saying, you know, not, not another inch, no, not, you know, we're not going to take these countries. There's a lot of dispute over what was said and what was meant. And um, I know what I, who I believe who was up, up around the table, what they say, but I will say that President Putin believes that he thought that we promised we would never take any of these countries. And for him, the breakup, um, not only the Soviet Union, but also losing the other countries around it has been very hard. And I think part of his, his, at least based on his rhetoric, he would like to see that come back again. But you also have to look at it from a religious sense. Um, after 2016, I believe it was maybe a little earlier, you also had the Ukrainian Orthodox Church breaking away from the Moscow Patriarch our patriarchy, and that was a huge, huge blow to many people. And so this war certainly has a religious dimension. I don't think you can dismiss that uh, at all. And you see now Orthodox churches breaking away. I'm talking about Russian Orthodox churches in other countries around the world saying, we're not gonna be under Moscow anymore because of this war. So I think we are wrong to ignore the religious aspect of this. I think it certainly is there for, for Putin and the biggest, well, a huge shame is going to be, and I pray it won't be, that most of those original churches and worship sites in Kyiv and in Ukraine will be destroyed as a result of this war. That would be a horrible, horrible sacrifice. But um, I think I'll stop there. David, was that enough to, to set this up, do you think? Oh, that was that was great. Unless Laura wants to make her William and Mary degree shine and add something. Hey, thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> I don't have too much really to add to what Julianne said. The only thing I would add, just to a little more of the current 
political context in Russia, um, most of my study of Russia has been under Putin as president because he came in 99, 2000 timeframe. And then I started studying Russian and Russian culture history and all more in 2003. And I was actually just looking back over some of my notes and I found something I wrote, I think with the help of another young woman who was living with me in Russia, we wrote um, some Russian cultural phenomena list after we'd been there for about 10 months. And one of the things we wrote was that they love Putin, that there's this mindset that Russia is a great nation because of Putin, that things are better under Putin. They have money for repairs, for remodeling, and that oil and gas equal power. Um, so this was written back in 2008. And I've been telling people recently, I also remember in college, in my classes, we learned a pop song that was called Tokovakak Putin. It's this really catchy disco tech song about how great Putin is and how women want a man like Putin. Yeah. Um, and this was a pop song. And so it just makes me think how much the people of Russia have almost been brainwashed to some extent, just really hammered with this message of how great Putin is and how strong of a leader he is. Um, and that's something that we're seeing the effects of now when we're seeing how much support the war has in Russia and people not understanding really the, the reality and the, the truth of it. Laura, I would just say to that, and I absolutely think you're 100% right, but you, the amount of um, stopping any independent, whoops, independent media from having a role has been amazing. Uh, and you know, once uh, Putin came in power, a lot of what was independent media was shut down and we certainly see it right now, but yeah. Yeah, and I will just add too, I got to be there during the election when Medvedev was elected president and Putin stepped back for <laughs> those few years. Um, but it was interesting how, even though he was stepping back, it the kind of the undercurrent was that he was still the one who had the power. Yeah. Um, uh, RJ, with your permission, I, I just wanted to add one quick thing to the historical because many of us saw in the news um, the whole thing that happened in the Maidan Square in Kyiv a few years ago. And I honestly think that if there would have been a pro-Russian president sitting in office in Kyiv, we might not see what we're seeing today. But because we have with Zelensky a pro-Western president who wants to move to the West, not only through NATO, but through the EU. That's a lot of what's behind it. I think you can trace this back to Maidan and what happened there. And with that, I'll stop with history. And we have Khan and Danny who had lived during that time of transition. So anyone, like any of you, can you share some of that of what Laura had shared about the pop song? And Sure, yeah. I mean, actually, so my time is uh, right before that. So I think I can speak how people ended up loving Putin so much. Uh, because I, I came, I, my family moved to the Moscow in 1994, which is the year following the Yechen kind of did his speech in front of the White House, which is not the presence of racial, uh, resident in like in the States, but it's like parliament. It's a very kind of symbolic building in Moscow and close to the United States embassy. And there's a, in a way, Kuteta and Boris Yeltsin stood on, uh, on top of the tank and doing the public speaking, how Russia should uh, be a democratic country. 
It was very great, but still, since that moment, and as Boris Yeltsin became president, uh, Russia began to uh, wrestle and struggle with the corruption. And the, there was uh, people who had money making more money, but there are people who are in the, uh, like uh, teachers, like retail workers, and who have been living with the basic salary or minimum salary, uh, salary or wage being given by government on, uh, during the Soviet time. But now they have to compete against each other, but they could not make the money. So what happened was there are increase of these tensions and dislike of the President Yeltsin and the corruption just went further and further. So one of the example is that almost every police officers actually off the shift, they are working as a bodyguard of the mafia boss or the lieutenants. So there's strong connection with the mafia and there was no safety and stability. And I was elementary school, I went to elementary and middle school there. And as a foreigner, I have to carry the passport and visa, but the police officer, they start randomly and not the reason to check the identity, but they tried to take money from the foreigners. And if you do not speak Russian, you cannot defend yourself. So you have ended up just giving the money. And those corruptions got, got, uh, got serious and people began to see that this is not working. And they, what they also observe is that their status Russia in the world leaders. They used to be one of the top two or top one, according to them, <laughs> during the uh, times. But in the 90s, their reputation was so low and they are in the depths. And in relationship with South Korea, Russia was in debt, but they didn't have money to pay back. So what they did was they pay with the military technology and the equipment. So when they saw that, it was, it was not the Russia or Soviet Union they used to see it. So many of those adults, they began to dislike the, uh, Boris Yeltsin. And when he stepped down during the, his presence in 1999, uh, they really compliment Putin who was former KGB and who had the leadership and experience and who had a, in a way, uh, patriotism of the Russia. And his model was really make this Russia again, great country and the leader of the country. So uh, I think this is a really, why like really people, in a way it was brainwashed later on for the younger generation, but for all the generation, it was a more voluntary thing because of their ex bad experience or negative experience of the democracy and capitalism. And another thing I like to add about key relationship with Ukraine is that, I mean, I don't have much of experience in uh, Ukraine, but in Moscow, there are several key train stations around, surrounding like a Moscow center. And one of the train station is a name, the key city that connecting this uh, Moscow and the cities. And one of them is a Kievsky Vauxhall, which is the Kiev, uh, Kiev train station. And it was there's a straight direct line from Moscow to Kiev. And you have, you can always every day has a train leaving every night to the Kiev so that you can have that. And I, if I remember correctly, the infrastructure was built in within the USSR, the Soviet Union, the many resources was coming from the Ukraine to Russia. And when the relationship fall off crack, they began to struggle and Russia tried to press uh, Ukraine leaders to continue, continue and honor that relationship and continue to have a fair or even uh, advent, uh, very like a benefiting Russia people uh, uh, receiving resources from the Ukraine. So. Yeah, that's what I experienced.
Yeah, for me, one one experience that I, I remember uh, is just to give perspective. I don't wanna. Uh, I'm I'm not a historian, so I'm not gonna try to teach history. But um, one of the things that happened was uh, when Soviet Union was breaking down, uh, we got a lot of phone calls from people in the U.S. and Korea. Uh, Are you okay? Are you okay? But we turned on the TV and all we saw was ballet being played on, on most of the channels. That's just another perspective of uh, how the people living in Russia was not aware uh, of uh, many things that was going on in their own, uh, um, I guess, media channels. But what I know, obviously, just I appreciate uh, Julianne's um, um, sharing and even Laura's um, that got reminded me of when I went to mission trips for them in Ukraine, they feel like Chernobyl was the beginning of uh, really the Soviet Union breaking down uh, of just just uh, trying to hide, trying to hide and and but it was affecting right. Uh, it was a disaster that was kind of waiting to happen. But one um, one I think uh, one article or even TV. Uh, uh, one information uh, resource that I, I thought was interesting is we can't ignore the geography of, of Russia and Ukraine as well, that there's a mountain that's between um, uh, Russia and Ukraine and, and the flat, uh, the, the Ukraine land is very flat. And, 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 and of course, there's the Black Sea. And so there is a lot of geogra uh, geographical history that I think plays a big role. But we cannot, uh, 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 um, I, I guess we can't ignore that, especially for the people in Ukraine, a lot of the rich history and culture that Russia has right now is, uh, is, um, is from Ukraine. Uh, and that's what the Ukrainians really believe that a lot of them were uh, tr transferred over and that that plays a big role. But on top of that, just, just to uh, uh, go down the road of what Laura was saying that Putin was popular and yes, that is true. And then Julian saying that uh, uh, he wanted a, a puppet leader in, in Ukraine. But Vladimir Zelensky, um, that I was also, it was, it was very interesting. He was a threat to Putin's popularity and his leadership style because he knew the East very well. Even though he was pro-West, he wasn't like the other Western countries, but he knew the Eastern hearts and their, their interests really well. They, he know, knew how to speak their language. Even, for example, when um, the Russian channel said that Zelensky fled the city, he up, appeared in, in social media and said, no, I'm right here, I'm, I'm right here. He knew the heart, how to speak to the Eastern group, which is a big threat to Putin. Uh, and, and because of that, he's getting, his popularity is rising. And just like what Julian shared that Soviet Union began with Ukraine, I think that was the original strategy to try to again, um, really uh, maybe attempt to go back to some sort of Soviet power, but Ukraine, because of its past history, they are they are not willing to go down that road, and that's for me. I just wanted to uh, um, share that source of information. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in with a couple more things. Um, with Putin, too, we need to remember that to some extent, this is history repeating itself. He came to power when Chechnya was starting to, it's a republic inside Russia, was starting to have movement towards independence, and he bombed the heck out of them. <laughs> Um, and did it twice. And when I was living over there, I met someone who grew up in Grozny during that time and just the devastation that that those wars wrought. And we're seeing that again, you know, Ukraine was moving away from the Russian sphere of influence. And so he's initiating this war. And then the flip side too, one of the lines we're hearing Putin say a lot is that they're there to denazify Ukraine. And that has really strong resonance in Russia because of that history. 
We tend to forget the Soviet Union um, role in World War II and how the Nazis just invaded and took this whole swath all the way up to St. Petersburg, Leningrad at the time, and laid siege for several years on the city. And I think hundreds of thousands of people were killed in that siege. Um, and so every May 9th is Victory Day now. And it's this huge parade and celebration of the Russian military. And there is extreme pride um, in, in their minds. They're the ones who defeated the Nazis. Like they, they were the key for the, the allies defeating Nazi Germany and, and fascism. So to bring that in is tapping into that deep historic patriotic roots of Russia and this like, just great pride that they have over what they endured and how they were able to resist and ultimately defeat the Nazis. And I think that's a really important thing to remember because I think we Americans think that the, the, the turning point for World War, World War II was the Normandy invasion and we lost tens of thousands of people, but we are not fully aware of the extraordinary sacrifice the 25 million people who died in Russia. Um, and I think one of the things that's important as a, as a part of the context for this is Russians have not very often had positive experiences with outside groups, whether it's Swedes or Germans or Tatars or whoever. And so there's this almost historic genetic uh, suspicion of outside forces. Uh, and just as we in the United States were having conniption fits in the 1960s because Cuba had missiles that were within range of the, the mainland for the United States, whether we agree with it or not, there is certainly, in addition to this sense that Ukraine is a part of historic Russia, this sense of these outsiders are right up against our border. And um, the third thing that comes to mind for me as an outsider, it struck me when, when I was visiting Russia in the past that we love democracy and we love freedom as, as kind of core values for us. I don't think that's true for Russians. I think stability and order are what are priorities for them. This country has 12 time zones. It's massive. And so the, the messiness of democracy does not necessarily sit well with people who feel like uh, it's almost impossible to keep this huge jigsaw puzzle together in one in one piece. I think, I think another important piece of the Ukraine and Russia piece is that uh, maybe we feel the war has just begun, maybe some of us, but especially for the Ukrainians, this war actually began in 2014 uh, and it's ongoing and um, for us, we just are aware of it as, as this war that because of the devastation that's happening. But we can also ignore the social media outlets that are uh, providing more, I guess, um, quote unquote, fake news, um, because the arguments even on the ground between uh, Ukrainian even pastors and Russian pastors is that even Ukrainian were, Ukrainians were saying there's tanks on the border, but the Russians were saying, no, there is no tanks. And even just that simple uh, uh, piece of information has been in disagreement. And um, what's sad is I think uh, Bishop Edward Haggai uh, revealed that um, there are 68% that are, uh, that are uh, who are Russian is, feels this war is just. And uh, that really uh, breaks 
the, uh, a lot of hearts, especially in the United Methodist Church where we are against war. And I think that that is something that is also part of play, especially as social media and again, hacking, right? All these different source that's adding into already the existing things that uh, we were just talking about. So, wow, I knew that our connection of these people coming together will provide a lot of information, but this is wow. I think it's like I'm sitting back in a college uh, classroom. I also want, I, I do want to, I really appreciate all your historical background, but I do want us to go back onto religious sides, uh, religious and also our United Methodist connection, because a lot of us will not remember that it, our initiative of hope, which is now partnered through hope, has started with the Russia initiative. So we do have a long history of connection uh, contributing to the mission in Russia and nurturing the leaders there. So I was wondering if we can shift their gears and talk about our mission work through the Eurasia Episcopal area. Hey, I wanna add something to that too, RJ, because yes, it goes back even farther than that. Uh, one of the reasons the United Methodist Church was able to uh, get registered as an official uh, religious community uh, soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union was because we were able to show that Methodist had been in Russia for more than 50 years. Our, and the reason we were able to do that was because there was a Methodist community in St. Petersburg in the early 1900s that was suspicious to the czar and his minions because they were pacifist. And the, the documentation we have that there were Methodists in St. Petersburg at that time is basically the notes from the secret police that had uh, come and attended Methodist worship services back then. So it's not just the Russia initiative, but it's back more than a hundred years that we were this community, this small fringe community in a predominantly Orthodox country uh, that was pacifist, but also uh, present and, and making a difference in the lives of folks. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, that connection was reestablished with the help of GBGM and, um, and the Russia initiative that impacted um, many areas of Russia and eventually into other areas of the former Soviet Union as well. And so is there someone who could tell us a little bit more about uh, that Eurasia Episcopal area that has seven, is it seven annual conference that goes over the countries? Share a little bit more about that. Danny and Gunn, you can always jump in. The preachers yeah, to speak up. No, I, I was going to add on to the fact that if we go, are going to talk about religious, we, uh, I think Julianne made, mentioned a very great part uh, point about um, the power of the Russian Orthodox Church cannot be ignored. Uh, they are highly, I mean, they would not like to see it that way, that, that they're connected, but they're very politically connected. And the, the, the Ukrainian church and the Russian church uh, having the differences is a big part. For me, um, uh, I appreciate David sharing the, the Methodists coming in, but we, you know, uh, our family, we, we moved in uh, during the time of Soviet Union breaking down. And so um, during that time, uh, it was just, just it's just basically church planting, supporting the needs of the people and then expanding through location. Uh, and what has now been connected into Russian initiatives and, 
and Bishop uh, Haggai uh, is basically the the bishop of the Euro Asia Conference, um, and it's it's the biggest conference geographically <laughs> because of the nations that are involved with Central Asia, parts of the Europe countries, and Russia. And so it's not like you know Virginia Annual Conference where it's Arlington and Alexandria and Richmond districts, but they're they're crossing uh, international borderlines. Uh, and so uh, there's Russia, Ukraine, uh, Romania, um, Poland, uh, Central Asia. And it's within that connection that uh, we were able to, even though I went to mission trip to Kazakhstan, that I was still connected uh, into the, the, the Euro-Asia conference. And so technically it's the biggest. And um, that I think in that, uh, I can't just imagine what the Episcopal leaders are going through because they're just struggling not, with the conference lines, but uh, national, ideological, political, and and he resides in Russia. So just imagine, um, even though he is so against this war that there is assumption or even um, maybe false information or, or just unfortunate things uh, across across the line. So I just wanted to highlight that. I don't know if that was what you were looking for, RJ, but I mean, if yeah, others, no, yeah. Add in, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, we have to understand that it is beyond the state. It's beyond countries and nations. And that's why when uh, he had sent a request to the Council of Bishops, he had put an advanced special that says Russia and Moldova. But for him, in his perspective, it's all under his Episcopal area. So he thought that that would be a good way. He never knew that people from the states who have no understanding of this Episcopal area would say, why are we giving to Russia? And that's what I, I just thought that you, you clarified it well. And I want to just kind of dive in a little bit more into our church's involvement in Russia and also Ukraine. So uh, David, can you share a little bit about Russia? And then can I ask Hannah and Alan to share a little bit more about Ukraine? Would that be a good way to continue our conversation? So, <clears throat> I'm probably the oldest person, well, I don't know if I'm the oldest person, but certainly uh, a person who had a longer connection between Virginia Conference and the Russia Initiative that got started uh, probably in the early 90s under the guidance and leadership of a guy named Jerry John, who is a retired uh, elder living in, in Harrisonburg. And he worked in particular with folks uh, at Shenandoah University basically trying to find this sweet spot of mixing uh, faith opportunities, business connections, um, cultural and social service kinds of opportunities. Uh, so it was a multi-pronged endeavor. Um, and quite honestly, sometimes we kind of got those confused, <clears throat> I think, uh, that there were people who were interested solely in business connections or solely in cultural connections. But it, at that point, it was probably the main way uh, that we could uh, get any kind of toehold in, in uh, Russia. Uh, the reality is that the Orthodox Church is kind of the go-to religious uh, expression. So even though, as Daniel said, um, the this is the largest geographical annual uh, connection, um, we're still talking about probably less than 5,000 Methodists in all of these places together. So we're talking about a minuscule group. One, one of the advantages that we have, though, I think, is 
Well, I, I'm, old, I'm old enough to know the history that there's a lot to be said for drawing a line and saying no further for Putin. Uh, those who maybe remember Munich uh, know that there's a lot to be said for drawing lines. Um, but in addition to us being Americans and world citizens, we're also disciples of Christ who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So how do we find that sweet spot of being for peace, for Ukrainians, for Russians, for being the body of Christ in a world that that is a rare thing to see. I think we we could have a, a even though we are small, we are mighty. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for what we can do as a Christian witness because we have presence in both Ukraine and Russia and in other places as well that are being impacted by this conflict, by this war. Thank you very much. Hannah and Alan, can you share a little bit more about your experience in Ukraine? And I think um, in Ukraine, um, much like in Russia, since we were in both countries, working with, for us, working with youth, um, trying to build uh, their faith from younger people up um, was certainly a a mission that we had in both countries. I can see how it has worked well, especially in Ukraine. The, the Ukrainian people are very, very proud people. They're very strong people from what I could see and from what we could see. And um, they, are, they are interested in, in doing better and um, building their country. And I think building through faith is a, a genuine, a genuine assessment of that group right now. So, with all that interactions and the con connection that we have, I want to shift and see if we can share our thoughts about what do you see about this war? What is so devastating? Of course, it is devastating for anyone who turns on the news. But I think it, there's another level of devastation that you might have experienced uh, as you are looking at the news and reflecting on your, uh, your prior experiences. So I just wanna ask your, your thoughts on that. I, I'll just speak for a second, uh, moving beyond Ukraine, the devastation for the countries surrounding it. Not only are the numbers of people pouring over the borders more than they could have ever imagined trying to, to deal with. I mean, take a country like Moldova, which is very small and very poor. And I heard, a, uh, you know, if you're looking there, the number of children coming in, the number of children in Moldova now has skyrocketed because a large part of them are refugee children. And, um, you know, so this is, this is one thing that I think we, um, and our advance makes a nod to this, we have to be aware of the cost to these countries who are the neighbors uh, of what's gonna happen. But I think another thing is that for countries that have joined NATO that are on the borders, it brings back bad memories of, will he keep going? Are we really safe? Um, what if he uses, you know, um, tactical nuclear weapons and we're a border country? I mean, there are a lot of things that aren't talked about when we're focused on the horrific things that are happening in Ukraine itself. But the war is, 
is echoing there in, in ways that they might not here in the continental United States. But I would also say, if I could, RJ, since we've done all our work with the Afghan refugees, we will be seeing some of these Ukrainian refugees. And those of us who have worked with the Afghan program know that our refugee response agencies are already overwhelmed. Uh, are we ready to help pick up the, the pieces on this for them? And one of the biggest needs is housing. And there's a housing shortage across our country. This is one of the things that we've got to really think creatively as Christians and as churches. What can we do to help solve these issues as we are now looking at possibly many more refugees coming in with this program? And what does that mean for the refugees who've come here from other parts of the world who are saying, well, am I going to be pumped down lower in our list of people who can, who can stay here? Because now we have this wave of people that our president has promised are welcome. I mean, all these things are things that we need to think of as um, a, a faith community trying to help people who are refugees, because it will be an aspect, aspect of this war that will be headed our way. I think also on, on top of that, just knowing them um, personally uh, and to hear that their children and um, the mothers are being uh, sent elsewhere when they are remaining uh, really breaks my heart. I think that um, there's clips going around where um, daughters are being separated with their fathers. And, and I think that is, again, the, the product of what's, what's happening. Um, sorry, I'm a, I'm a C on the disc assessment, and so I want to have the right information out there. It, it, uh, it's the Euro-Asia area is under the central conference of the United Methodist Church. I think, I don't know if I said that in the previous recording, but I think with everything that's going on, I think uh, that has been probably the most devastating. Uh, and, and as a church, for me, knowing them, uh, I'm trying to bring more awareness in our church, even starting with our youth, because they do have a voice. Uh, a lot of young people, they, they, they have a voice. Uh, we, we have around, you know, 40, 50 meeting every week in person. But um, uh, next few weeks, uh, pastors in Ukraine will be guest speaking at our ministry. And um, for me, my, my concern is, I guess, being more aware of how the GBGM resources is being channeled and, and being delivered, I think there's questions around arising that, uh, especially as as, um, as as many companies are disengaging or disconnecting with countries in Russia. The concern is, I, I guess, more rather than the ideological things, is how can we get the resources to the people on the ground? Because we have, might have disagreements, but I think um, the children and, and, and the families being apart, we're just trying to get help to them and trying to bring more awareness to that. I think. Go ahead, Laura. Um, so one thing I was thinking of too, when we're talking is just, if, if we look going back, even when I was there, however many years ago, that was like 15 years ago or so now, um, like we couldn't go in as a religious worker you had, it was very touchy in the Russian government about how you could go in and do work with the local churches. And um, so like I went in as a student because I also studied at a Russian university there. And it's only gotten worse where non-governmental non organizations are having to re-register, including religious groups. Any group that has connections with the West is comes under suspicion. 
So it's going to make it, the war has made it even harder for the church in Russia um, to continue to be a part of our global denomination. Um, and then in Ukraine, of course, it's just being devastated. And Julianne had made a point in our chat that I wanted to bring up that back in the 30s, there was the great starvation where millions of Ukrainians were basically starved to death because all of the food that, and Ukraine has is an amazingly fertile soil. Um, all of the food that was produced there was shipped elsewhere in the Soviet Union and Stalin just let all the people starve and die. Um, so there's all of these generational, that, with that and then World War II, you just had swaths of generations die. And we're gonna see, unfortunately, it looks like we might see that again with this war. And, um, and then the other sad thing in all of this is when I was still really involved in the Russian Initiative here in our conference, one of the big goals was self-sufficiency for the churches in Ukraine, in Russia. And some of them were, were getting to that point, like there, there was roadmaps and they were working on it. And I think some of them have achieved it. And this is gonna set them back <laughs> because they, they had been doing, they'd been doing great ministry in country cultural ministry that was working for their context. Um, and now their context is being destroyed, especially in Ukraine, like physically being destroyed. The people are being dispersed. Um, and it's just a huge setback for the work that had been building up so well there. Um, that, was, that was really important, Laura. So I'm glad I gave way to you. Um, I just want, and I don't want us to lose focus on the situation in Ukraine. But Daniel's comment about mothers and children being separated reminds me that that happens at our border too. It, I mean, one of the things the Ukrainians have going for them is that they're white. We're gonna find it an easier time to welcome white refugees that, than the brown refugees who are at our border who are also fleeing devastating terrifying circumstances. And so I think in some ways, it's worth it for us to ask ourselves the sole question of why is this different? Why is our white privilege impacting on this in some way? And should it? And what does it mean to welcome the refugee regardless of who they are? So I don't want to lose sight of this. It just, when, when we point the finger at somebody, oftentimes four fingers are pointing back at ourselves. Thank you, David. Uh, I just want to go back to uh, the comment that Laura uh, had, and I just want a little bit more from my experiences that about the religious workers from uh, foreign country was limited. Uh, if I remember correctly, it began, actually that process began 1999 because uh, they didn't, uh, many missionaries, they didn't have a permanent residence there. So they had to renew their visa every year. But through that, they began to control uh, like uh, work and the resources coming from the foreign country because Russian Orthodox Church was threatened by Protestant growth and all that. And I believe that is also connected with the Eurasia Episcopal area leadership because Moscow and uh, Russia was the mission post because of the key relationship between missionaries, American missionaries and Korean missionaries and the underground church leadership. 
and many of uh, pastors and the leaders were trained in Moscow and some pastors has to travel Moscow to attend the seminary and receive this ordination and the training. Uh, but in a way, uh, they, since 1999, actually, they began to restrict foreign missionaries to preach to local congregation, meaning they cannot preach Russian congregation. That law or bill, I don't know, I'm not sure what exactly what it was, but because of the order, uh, the leadership had to uh, transfer to the Russian uh, pastors or who were native to them. And foreign missionary, American and Korean missionaries, they have to step back, they're forced. So my dad has to like step back. And by then, gratefully, he was there like six years. They are like a, a, a bunch of pastors who can lead and take over. So their leadership was transferred, but I think few years later, they began to even shrink the visa, decrease the length from one year to six months, three months. So actually some missionaries had to go to like a Finland or like a Estonia to get the renewed visa because it's too expensive to fly to the States or South Korea. So that was really hard, but because of that forceful transition, actually thankfully we are ready to do that. And I believe the Methodists from a transition from the mission post to our connectionism. They became part of the central conference and they are ready to elect their bishop. And that's why I believe the uh, Bishop Edward Kegai was the first bishop of the, uh, Eurasia. And because of that, uh, this connection was born <laughs> out of here. But I also believe that even yet, as David mentioned, it is a smaller uh, membership, but still they could go across the nationalities and the countries because of two things. The first thing is the language. So I was in Uzbekistan in 2008 or 2007 for short-term mission trip. And I spoke even broken Russian <laughs> and I was learning English, but still I could minister and I could communicate and have conversation with them because I spoke Russian, even Uzbekistan. And there are many pastors actually who came from Moscow to minister there. And now I've heard that Uzbekistan is closed because of Islam uh, in influence and all that. Now they're persecuted and many pastors and Christians thrown into the jail because of their faith. But their plan was that they're going to work in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and train by using the Russian language and send the missionaries to Islamic country like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, or even further Turkey or Chechnya. So language is definitely a thing. And then last thing was that uh, because of sharing the history of Cold War, they've been, even now they want an independency, but they had sharing history so many years that gave us some uh, connectionism between these uh, Soviet Union, former Soviet Union countries. And that's why they could uh, form the Eurasia Episcopal uh, area leadership. And I believe I'm grateful and God is still at work and we have hope for that. And I'm glad that our Methodist leadership and the ministry is there doing God's work for that. So it sounds like we still need to continue to support them in all their efforts. And the we're going to shift on to how we can help. Because Hannah, uh, can you share what your connection is doing in Ukraine? And then I think that might be a, a good way for us to kind of focus of where we and what we can do. Well, um, our, our connection in Ukraine is with the pastor of the church, Velodya Prokov. And um, hearing from him yesterday, 
we had we had emailed him about 10 days ago and did not hear anything until yesterday because he was so busy with the refugees in his church. Um, he said that if you want to help monetarily, the best way to do it is to do, um, let's see, Western Union or his personal account with the bank. We have um, our church has used that account numerous times, um, sending money every year to that church to help fund them. Uh, and that has worked, but right now I don't know because I'm not even sure that the banks are open. And, you know, I just don't know, but um, money is something that they could use. Now, whether or not we do that, through individual churches or whether we do that through the bigger connection of the United Methodist Church. I don't know which is the best right now. So the reason why they need these funding and also not only the churches in Ukraine, because we have around 10 churches in Ukraine, what they're using is they're using their building as a host to receive refugee families and they're using supply the money to uh, provide the supplies, foods, anything that is needed to host them. So if your church has a connection uh, like Grace United Methodist has, you can share it directly. However, we do ask you to consider participating into the International Disaster Response Fund by the UMCOR, because what UMCOR is able to do when they receive that donation is to share it not only with the churches in Ukraine, but also the surrounding nations who are receiving refugees, who are transforming their church buildings into refugee camps. And the district superintendent, I saw a picture from GBGM that the district superintendent is now a supply, a supply manager, that he has to go and receive all the supplies and share with the families who are uh, there for refuge. So please certainly pray and uh, pay in terms of joining into the International Disaster Relief Fund by UMCOR, and that is on our website. Whenever we come to help, I always use this model, pray, pay, and participate. So our way of paying is contributing through our general conference and our United Methodist Connection, so the money can go to the appropriate uh, places where it is needed. I also wanna share that there is an opportunity for us to pray. And uh, we will be hosting a prayer visual on March 22nd, which is a Tuesday, seven o'clock. And if you are able to come and join us in the annual conference building, we have an annual conference a building in Glen Allen and right outdoor, we have a courtyard where we're gonna set up an outdoor prayer visual. For the people in Ukraine, we're reaching out to groups in, uh, of Ukrainians in Richmond. And we hope that this would be a place where people can come and pray for peace which is our social standards. And we also are gonna plan to broadcast this so a larger audience will be uh, able to uh, join. Participating part is, yes, David, go ahead. Just a quick thing. I think this would be an important bit of information for people to know. I think people will want to, to give to help with refugees through the, uh, through the UMCOR, um, but they also don't want the money to just be setting in accounts drawing interest, how often does that, will that money be distributed to the various entities that are helping with this effort? 
So that's a great question. So UMCOR currently has two funds. One is global migration and one is international disaster relief. And these two funds and offices are working together currently. And anything that you designate with saying Ukraine, it will go to Ukraine refugee response, whether it is in Ukraine or it is in the neighboring countries. Now, how can how the churches give? I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the disbursement afterward. How the churches can give? There's two ways. You can send a check directly to GBGM, or you can send it to our business office at Virginia United Methodist Church. And as soon as we get it, we disperse it to GBGM. Now, when those funds are collected at GBGM, I believe I might be wrong, but let me I'll get back with you. But my understanding was a weekly disbursement. Great. It was Great. a weekly Great. disbursement to not only Ukraine, but the uh, surrounding countries so they can respond and house the refugees who are the true victims of this war. So I hope that that answered your question, David. It does, perfect, perfect. Thank you very much. To my understanding, I think that Diaz, who is Aleg and his wife, Yulia, uh, they are forming a team on the ground amongst the pastors so that they could have more of a systematic way to um, disperse the, the, the resources to, uh, accordingly. And, and the reason why we're emphasizing on international disaster is because they will only disperse to someone like Alec who has the boots on the ground. Uh, and why we're trying to say, try not to go directly to a personal account unless you have a prior relationship is because they, we are also seeing a lot of scamming attempts as well. So just wanted to make sure that that is that is under, uh, that is available for us to understand the background of it. So this was a great conversation. I hope it was infor uh, informative for everyone. I just wanted to kind of open up any, if you have any final comments or remarks before we uh, end our discussion. Um, I, I, so um, Pastor Aleg and Yulia will be speaking at our church uh, recording March 27th. And then Vladimir uh, Prokip, he's going to be speaking uh, April 3rd, a recording as well. Uh, I hope, um, I mean, it, it will be online because we are doing hybrid worship. But my hope and prayer is that, um, that we continue to pray, uh, but that these they, the pastors on the ground, uh, they chose not to leave the country to help the people there uh, for the church to be the church. And they've been very honest. I don't know. I think um, Facebook uh, has been connecting with, I think, uh, Minnesota Conference. I think they've been speaking in, in different uh, varieties of areas. But they themselves are, you know, as they're wrestling with uh, what it means to what, what you're going to do when you see the enemy but they've been on the ground really proclaiming the gospel, the one name, Jesus, um, that will truly give the freedom and hope that they've all in this time has been uh, really been the source of strength. And so uh, with that, I, I'm continually praying for them. Um, even I, There are days where I can't even sleep at night because I'm praying for them, uh, worried. But um, I hope that we as the Connectional Church really become uh, the source of what United Methodist Church was originally about, the connection. Uh, to this is an opportunity to reveal and be the light, especially in these challenging times, because we thought we were just getting out of a pandemic and we were a little bit excited about that. And then the news of the war got to really take us down to another level. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Thank you very much. Hannah, can I ask you if you can share any final remarks before we go? 
Um, just finally, I, I certainly have enjoyed this a lot. I have learned a lot. As a mission person uh, going on mission trips, lots of times I don't know the background. Um, I, I just am part of the group and do what I'm supposed to do. And um, so this has given me a tremendous amount of background and I am, am very, um, very happy to be a part of this group, this caring group, and I appreciate it. Well, this has been very enlightening and I appreciate you all time. I, I would just like to say that uh, I think all of us kind of have this shared experience of having lived in different parts of the world and it's hard to appreciate and understand a culture until you've lived in that culture and start learning the language, making friends with the people. And uh, I think, but one thing I've found wherever I've lived around the world is the bond of the Christian faith is so unifying. Whatever the political persuasions, the cultural influences, the word of God, the Christian faith, praying together with your brothers and sisters is so unifying. And, and it's, uh, I, I hope that, I know that our focus will be getting out that word and meeting the physical and the spiritual needs. And again, I thank you all for this great insight and apologize for having to, to bail out here at this point, but thank you so much for Alan, allowing me to Alan, thank you this. very much. Before you go, but can I ask you your perspective yes. on the war since with your, with your professional uh, knowledge, uh, can you just give us some insights about the war and what will happen or what do you see in your perspective? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, from a, as a military guy, I know that we have the capability to go in there and just turn things around on behalf of the Ukrainians. But uh, also as a military person, you know that it's so painful when you lose, your fellow soldiers are killed. Uh, my dad was a World War II veteran in the Pacific and my son served in Afghanistan. My son's a disabled veteran and uh, because of his duty in Afghanistan. And so war is just, nobody wins during war. I mean, it sometimes becomes necessary, but it's a terrible thing. So if we can get out Bibles and the word of God, that's the best way to bring peace uh, and to unify people. I, you know, I, I don't know, that's, there's no, there's no short answer to your question. I, uh, I just, uh, just hope that. Uh, well, I guess the bottom line is we know that God's on the throne. His plan is working out. We don't always understand the big picture from God's perspective and why He allows things to happen. But our mission, and even when I was in the military, uh, as a very active Christian military. Uh, with my fellow soldiers, with the people were among uh, Korean soldiers, Katusas, uh, praying together with my Katusa buddies sometimes, uh, and the people of the host nation, uh, that, that Christian message is so vital. And whatever the world events, whatever world events transpire, and whatever we all may be going through, the word of God, his message is so important. So I'm excited for what's happening here and to have a little insight in what the great work that you're all doing. So thank you for this time. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for your time. And I think your, your statements uh, just has a lot of weight 
in terms of what we need to focus on. So thank you again. Thank you. God bless you all. God bless you. Have a good day. Thank you very much. I want to be the person to thank everyone for your mission in your heart. And we are grateful because of you are here and we're grateful because of the connection. Hey, RJ. Yes. I just want to jump into one more thing. Um, I don't know if it was mentioned, but I'm a part of a Facebook group called In Mission Together Eurasia. In Mission Together Eurasia. And if you can join the Facebook group, it's been a really good source of information um, for the Eurasia conference. And Great. so like, just for example, from a couple of days ago, um, they shared a post about how the Romanian Methodist churches have sent aid into um, Pastor Oleg and those in Ukraine. And so you can, it, it just helps to see how our whole connection is working and can get some good updates too on what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. So that's In Mission Together Eurasia Facebook Great. group. Thank you very much. We'll try to we'll try to put that in the description. So that is it for this month. And I want to ask, uh, give thanks to everyone who joined us. Uh, for all the ones who are listening, remember that our audio advocate will be released on the first week of every month. Until we meet again, remember that we are all in this together. Thank you very much.